Welcome to the show. My name is Michael Lin. I'll be your host today, and this is the MongoDB Podcast. Today on the show, Dr. Sasha Fedorova. He's a professor in the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department at UBC, University of British Columbia. She's got a PhD from Harvard, and she spends time working with MongoDB Labs, focusing research around how MongoDB and WireTiger, the storage engine, can better use newer types of hardware. We discussed that today in detail, go into a discussion of non-volatile memory and some newer types of storage. Stay tuned for that. Hey, did you know that MongoDB World is June 7th through the 9th in New York City? Tickets are still on sale. Tickets are still on sale, and you can get 25% off using the code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Visit mongodb.com world to get your tickets. Don't miss this one. Ray Kurzweil, author, inventor, entrepreneur, and futurist, is going to be a featured keynote speaker on Thursday, June 9th. Visit mongodb.com slash world. Don't forget, use the code podcast to get 25% off, as well as some podcast swag. Dr. Sasha Fedorova, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. Maybe start by telling folks who you are and what you do. I'm a professor at UBC, and uh, my work focuses on systems. So what do we mean by systems in my context? Because, you know, it's a very overloaded word. So basically, it's a software that sits between the hardware and the applications and makes it easier for applications to use that hardware uh, that comes in, you know, all shapes and sizes in a one common way and also leveraging its performance to the best extent possible, hopefully. So that's uh, that's what I do. That's what my research focuses on, and I teach classes, obviously, around the same uh, topics. Now, why am I consulting at MongoDB, and you know, how did I get here? So that started uh, quite a while ago, around 2013, when I went on my first sabbatical, and you know, I was looking for something interesting to do. And, you know, like it often happens in life, uh, somehow the <laughs> disinformation gets out and uh, this opportunity just landed on my, on my lap. So I knew some people in Wired Tiger, which was not part of MongoDB yet at the time. And so um, I joined them and I started basically working on various small projects on improving performance you know, just looking for opportunities to make this or that faster. And I can talk about details later. And then when um, White Tiger got acquired by MongoDB, I um, thankfully I got acquired, you know, with them and MongoDB decided that they still want to keep me. And so I'm still, I'm still here. And um my role has expanded a little bit. I still do some performance hacking, but more recently, I also started looking at adoption of new technologies. So, for example, if there is a new storage technologies like Optane non-volatile memory that came out in 2019, can we take advantage of this in the storage engine to make it you know, more efficient, performant, easier to use? So my, my my role at that point, you know, I turned from, you know, somebody who 
just you know reads up and learns about these technologies to an actual engineer who sits down and uh, prototypes the necessary software that's needed to integrate this technology into the storage engine and you know and then measure performance evaluate it and you know uh, look at pros and cons and and write about it fascinating and i want to get deeper into the work you've done with uh, with newer technologies. But before we go there, I'm curious how you got interested in systems. This is your area of, of specialty, specialization. Yeah. Um, how did you get interested in systems? I don't really have a good answer to that. You know, I was, um, I got into computer science by, by accident. I was studying economics in college and uh, that was sort of that was in the late 90s so you know the dot-com boom was about to happen or was happening and you know i just figured i need to learn something about computers you know just to be you know on the same page with what's happening in the world and i took a computer science class and i just totally fell in love with it i i was just you know so fascinated and um excited about, you know, the, the process itself, because, you know, it felt so real that you could, you know, sit down and write a program and, you know, it works and it does something. And, you know, I just found this fascinating, the, you know, specifically the aspect of, um, of programming. And then, so I decided that I, you know, had to make this my major, even though I, it was already junior year, you know, very late to be, you know, deciding on your major. But I I stayed up all night, you know, planning out, you know, or schedule to make that happen. And I was able to make that happen. And then uh, one thing led to another. The first company that I went to work for, you know, didn't have really sort of exciting and challenging opportunities for young people. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go to grad school. <laughs> this is where the tough stuff happens. And Sure enough, I got more of it uh, than I was maybe working for. And then why systems? You know, it's hard to tell. It's like um, explaining to somebody, you know, why, why do you like one thing and not the other? I don't know. I just, um, I, I just found the, um, the idea of hacking complicated systems just very personally compelling for the reasons that I can't explain. And that's why. Yeah, <laughs> I think people in tech in general have a natural curiosity, and I think that that tends to draw you to certain certain topics and certain areas. And there's an interesting uh, Venn overlay between economics and computers, technology, and performance specifically. Would you agree? Yeah, there's there's there certainly is. There are many ways in which they can be explored in computer science. For example. One of my good friends is exploring game theoretical, you know, approaches that certainly have uh, their place in, in computer science and in algorithms. And my work didn't go in that direction, though that being said, you know, being a consultant at the company sort of forces me to answer the questions that ultimately have to do with the, with the economics. So for, so for example, non-volatile memory that I recently explored as, um, you know, how, how can we use it in WireTiger? You know, one of the questions that I asked is, is it economically more attractive, uh, you know, relative to other alternatives, you know, say relative to using, you know, existing memory that we have 
For the listeners that may not be familiar with the technology, can you explain what non-volatile memory is? Non-volatile memory is basically a physical storage fabric where you know you can write your data and it retains the data even if your system you know crashes or if you power it off, right? So like a hard disk. So hard disk refers to how you can package the storage fabric, right? So inside the hard disk, you have basically a bunch of chips. So, so if you if you open up, you know, an SSD, not 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 the old style hard drive that has you know a bunch of spinning platters, but if you open up an SSD, all you have is a bunch of you know chips inside. And so inside these chips is a particular storage fabric. And the SSDs that are prevalent these days have flash memory. And so the non-volatile memory product uh, from Intel and Micron, which is called Optane, and it was released in 2019, it's a new storage fabric. It's a new persistent type of persistent memory that doesn't lose your data if your system crashes or if you power it off. And you can actually package it two ways. You know, you can take those memory chips and put them inside a regular SSD. And so Intel has this, you know, SSD product with their opt-in memory. But you can also, with this memory, package them as DIMMs, dual inline memory modules, that you can then put into the same slot that you put your regular DRAM. So you can take that persistent, you know, storage fabric and have it as an SSD or have it just like regular memory that sits next to DRAM. And then, so essentially you can, you can have your storage device sitting right next to DRAM and you can use it in two ways. You can use it as storage as you would, you know, use a regular disk or you can use it as memory. And there are, you know, various interesting aspects around, you know, these use cases. So the first question that you ask about this technology, okay, well, so it's, you know, it's a non-volatile DIMM that sits right, right next to your DRAM, but how is it performing? Is it as fast as DRAM? And the answer here is very interesting. So if you look at latency, latency is, you know, if, you, if I need, you know, 100 bytes to read 100 bytes of data from, from memory, how long does it take if I'm reading from regular DRAM versus NVRAM, non-volatile RAM. And so the difference is about a factor of two or three. So it only takes about two or three times slower to read 100 bytes. And, and you know, that's, that's really, really good because if you're reading your data off of an SSD, then that takes, you know, an order, at least an order of magnitude uh, longer than uh, with DRAM. So that's that's latency. If you only need, you know, to get a small number, a small amount of data. What about throughput? So throughput is if you want to basically suck a large, you know, volumes of data continuously. And here we're talking about not how many, you know, milliseconds or nanoseconds it takes, but how many bytes per second can I read or write? And if you're trying to read your uh, your data sequentially, you know, which is usually the easiest use case for all kinds of storage technologies, sequential access is usually, you know, the fastest. Then, so from a one non-volatile DIMM, you're going to get the throughput of about six gigabytes per second. If you have six DIMMs, it's going to be about, you know, 36 gigabytes per second. So that's very comparable to regular DRAM. And 
DRAM, it depends like how many channels you have from your CPU to memory. So for example, one if you have one channel, you're able to get the throughput of 19 gigabytes per second, you know, with your DRAM. And the number of channels you have in the system, well, it depends how expensive your system is. You know, if you want to have, you know, eight channels is going to be a very expensive system. If you have two, it's going to be like not, not very expensive. So the, the, the read throughput is comparable, but the write throughput of Optane and VRAM is its Achilles heel. It is, it is quite low. So on, on the system that I have, a single NVDIM, non-volatile DIM, gives me less than a gigabyte per second. Other researchers have managed it to be, you know, around one gigabyte per second, pr- probably different memory version, you know, per single DIM. And uh, by comparison, if you take the, you know, Optane uh, SSD, so same non-volatile memory, but packaged as an SSD, you get about two gigabytes per second of write throughput. Why the difference? My guess is that there is just more parallelism inside the SSD because you, yeah, it's, it's a separate bus. card that yeah. sits on a separate bus and you can just put, you know, more, more, more chips in there. So that would be my guess. But, you know, I, I could be wrong about that. Do you see this technology being adopted by some of the, the more popular cloud providers yeah. like AWS and Azure? So not yet. Uh, when, when this technology was announced in 2019, uh, Google made an announcement that they said that they would offer it as part of their SAP HANA offering, which is, you know, like a large in-memory uh, analytics engine. But I have not seen, you know, specific offerings since. And perhaps part of the reason is that people don't yet know where exactly it fits in the storage stack and what's the right way to use it. And so, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to, you know, do the experiment that I did with non-volatile memory in the storage engine is to answer this question, you know, how do you use it? What is it useful for? And is it worth it in terms of, you know, performance and, you know, economics, like the cost? And what types of changes need to take place in the storage engine subsystem in order to take advantage of this technology? So I can tell you about a specific use case that I explored. So basically, let's let's in general let's talk about you know how you can use this non-volatile memory, right? So I said earlier that you can use it either as a storage or as memory. So you know you can you can put it into your system, and then the operating system can make it look just like a regular uh, disk drive, and you know with that you don't have to make, you know, any changes to use it. So you use it just like, uh, you know, a regular device. So I want to pause. So when you're, when you're preparing your system, in order for it to appear as a hard drive, obviously mm-hmm. you need to, to format it and create a, a file system that lives on that. And, and you would do that in, in the same conventional way? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, well... There are a few, like a couple of extra commands you, you know, you type before that, but, you know, then it looks just like a regular block device and you can put a file system on it and use it in a way that you would use, you know, a regular SSD. So you you can do that. Um, this use case is is questionable in terms of economics, although, you know, I it's not the use case that I explored in detail, but 
in my opinion, it is a bit questionable in terms of economics because you you basically get a very small and very expensive SSD <laughs> that uh, with the right throughput, that's not very good. So, although better than than conventional than most SSDs, no, or no, it wouldn't be, would it? Than 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 most, right? Than mm-hmm. um, yeah, better than 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 the conventional NAND flash SSDs. Yes, mm-hmm. abs- a- absolutely. Yes. So my guess is that probably this will not be the dominant use case of this technology. Now, the other opportunity is to use it as as memory. And here we have two options. The first option is that you can use this as memory, but keeping in mind that it's persistent. So, you know, you write your data structure to memory, but then if you crash and then you reboot, potentially your data structure is still there. And that is a very challenging use case because the applications are not designed to deal with memory that survives crashes. And that's really that's really hard. That's, that's, that's a whole can of worms. I mean, imagine you started writing a change to your data and it involves writing 50 bytes, right, to affect this change, right? And let's say you wrote 25 bytes and then your system crashed and it comes back up and you have your data in only 25 bytes written and the other 25 contain garbage. And and your application doesn't know how to interpret this data. Uh, It's not designed to deal with corrupt data because, you know, in the past, um, if your system crashed, none of it would survive, right? So that, that use case is actually quite challenging. It requires, you know, lots of new software infrastructure to to make it work. And there is a lot of research that's going in, in the community. Now, there is another way to use NVRAM as memory, and that is to completely ignore the fact that it's persistent. Okay? So just use it as volatile memory. Now, why the heck would you want to do this, right? And the reason is that, so NVRAM would be denser and cheaper than regular DRAM. So what do I mean by denser? It means that I can put more total memory into my, you know, physical system, physical server. So with two CPU, if I have two CPUs, a two CPU system, like two socket system, I can put up to 12 terabytes of NVRM. Yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, or up to six terabytes. I think it's up to six terabytes. So basically on that order, a few terabytes, it's it's uh, six per CPU and up to five, 12 gigs in a in a DIM. Yeah, I, th- I think it's about, it's, it's basically six terabytes. And putting, so I can put six terabytes of NVRAM like pack into my system and putting that much DRAM into a single system is very, very expensive and maybe not even possible. You know, because because the the individual individual DIMMs are just not that dense, so I can pack more bytes, and this memory will be cheaper per byte, and the RAM will be cheaper per byte than DRAM. Why is it cheaper? Is it just constructed differently and uses cheaper materials? Yeah, it's just a different technology. Mm. Okay, so I want to touch on the application. Now, it would seem to me, uh, obviously, in the database space the more memory is better, especially when you've got a large working set for your data. And uh, I'm wondering if <laughs> I'm wondering if this would have been a solution for MMAP rather than uh, 
you know, in a memory mapped database where you, you have this level, this amount of storage or amount of memory, I'm wondering if that would have been a, a solution um, as opposed to rewriting the, the memory map structures. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, if you have an in, an in-memory storage engine and you just want, you know, you want to address uh, customers, you know, who have uh, a larger working set and, you know, instead of telling them, go get a different, you know, storage engine or uh, we will rewrite our storage engine, you could say, well, hey, you know, just, just get more memory and it's cheaper now, right? So this is one use case. But, you know, even for... Even you know, for you know for any for any system that is not necessarily in memory only, having more memory is better because um, the access latency is just smaller than than having to go to disk, right? And so so imagine that you have um, a budget, a budget that you can spend on extra memory, and you have a choice: do I buy more DRAM or do I buy more NVRAM? And for that same money, you can get more NVRAM, about, you know, three times more NVRAM than you can get DRAM. Depends on the price, depending on, you know, your discount and your vendors, but, you know, roughly saying, you know, that's the, ball, that's the ballpark. But then your performance will also be a bit slower. You know, maybe, not, not always, but in, in, in most cases it will be. So the question that you're asking is, Okay, is it worthwhile for me to, you know, given my fixed dollar budget that I have, and you know, memory is the most expensive component in, you know, in data centers. That's, you know, that's what I hear from people who run data centers. So, given my fixed budget, do I get more DRAM or do I get more NVRAM? Mm. And and this is the and this is why the use case of, you know, let's forget about persistent and that all that complicated software that's needed. Let's just treat it as volatile because then you're writing the software just like you would write it for DRAM and, you know, you don't need anything extra. And is it worthwhile to uh, to use it in that way? And that's exactly the use case that I explored in MongoDB and, uh, you know, and the prototype that I built. Now, when can we expect to see uh, adoption, l- larger scale adoption of this type of technology? I mean, even with just with MongoDB and Wired Tiger, is this, have we seen changes made to the Wired Tiger storage engine in support of this technology? Yeah. So as, as part of my work, I implemented uh, the changes to Wired Tiger to use NVRAM. So what I, what I wrote was, uh, what I built was uh, NVRAM cache. So it allows White Tiger to allocate a chunk of space in NVRM. And then when it reads a block of data from disk, uh, it also puts this block of data into this NVRM cache so that later, if it needs to reread this block again, it checks to see is it in the NVRM cache. And if it is there, it gets it from the cache and it doesn't need to pay the latency of going to disk. So that's uh, that's the um, the extension to Wiretiger that I built, and it has been you know merged into develop branch. So you know it's there, and whoever wants to use it, they can use it. And whether or not it'll get adopted, you know, my guess is as good as anybody else's. My guess is that if there is a, you know, if there is a customer with a specific sort of need for more memory and a limited budget and uh, 
they adopt it and they then they like it and enough people do then then we could see big cloud providers making this available whether or not it'll happen you know it's um I can't predict the future. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, how will this surface in the configuration of MongoDB? Is it uh, is it switches set at compile, or is it configurations that are runtime? Well, you you do need you need you do need to um, compile uh, to enable an, one option at compilation time, and then you need to enable it at runtime. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, if you want, I can also talk about some interesting technical aspects of building um, the cache on NVRM because it has to do with uh, specificities of performance. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier about writes, write throughput being an Achilles heel of this technology. And so, you know, write throughput can be slow. Okay, that, that's fine. But what I, the very interesting thing that I found on this technology was that, so, so if you're just reading, you know, if you're just reading your data, your performance is, you know, is pretty good. We talked about, you know, read throughput being, you know, very good comparable to, to DRAM. But as long as you have a single concurrent writer, so a thread that writes into the memory while other threads are reading from it, the performance of readers drops quite significantly. Okay? So the presence of writers drastically affect the performance of readers. And, you know, this is not a completely new phenomenon. This happens to some extent on any storage device, including DRAM. But the extent to which this happens on NVRM is just much, much higher. So for example, the presence of a single writer can drop your performance to like half of having no writers. And if you have like eight writers and eight readers, you know, on a system with 16 CPUs, so they're not competing for CPU or anything, then your writers will experience throughput that's, you know, combined, that's like 90% lower than if there were no readers. Your readers will experience the throughput that's 90% lower than if there were no writers present. So the impact that the writers have on readers is just much, much more drastic on this technology. Well, and, and that, that occurs if they're writing to the same to the same dim. Not, not if the readers are reading from one dim and the writers are writing to another, if the readers and writers are accessing the same dim. So this is what would happen. And this consideration, you know, that was not widely known before, but it turned out to be very critical for cache design because, so when you build a cache, there is a trade-off. If you, so, so if you have a cache, you're doing two things. First of all, you are admitting new data into the cache. So if, you know, you're reading those blocks from disk and you're deciding, oh, okay, I'm going to cache this block in my NVRM you're writing those new blocks into the into your cache you're admitting new data and you know you need to you need to admit new data in order for for the cache to be effective right because if you only have the old data that nobody cares about anymore you know that's not very useful so you have to purge the old data you have to admit new useful data and the second thing that you're doing is you you are retrieving from the cache the data that's already there so you know so if i have the data that i need and it's in the cache great i want to retrieve it and so retrieving the data from the cache is obviously reading, 
but admitting the data in the cache is writing. And so this is where we might potentially have a problem because if your, your admission, putting new data in the cache, you're writing new data in the cache, is too eager, then the rate of your retrieval of the existing data will suffer. It'll just take a very, very long time. And so what I discovered is that in order for the NVRM cache to perform well and to be effective, you have to be very careful about how eagerly you admit new data. You have to throttle the admission rate. And that is um, more or less new consideration for this type of technology because it wasn't very relevant for other caches that people had built in, in, in the past. But for anybody building caches on NVRM, this will be a very, very important consideration for performance. So it would seem to me that with a greater capacity, uh, you may want to give consideration to warming your cache prior to, prior to an exercise. Absolutely. And, and this is where we can also make our cache um, be a bit smarter and actually take advantage of the fact that the memory is persistent. So, you know, if you can add a bit more software support and say, okay, well, you know, I have an VRM, but now I can actually take advantage of its persistence. And if my application crashes and restarts, I don't have to populate my cache from scratch, but I can uh, use the data that was already there prior, you know, prior to the, um, to the crash. And, um, and in fact, this will be very important. This is not the feature that we have in our cache yet, um, but this will be important going forward because, you know, if you have, you know, six terabytes of NVRM sitting on your system, it takes a long time to, you know, populate six terabytes of data, right? Uh, especially, especially given that the right throughput is low and we want to limit it, then, taking advantage, m making the cache persistent and survive crashes will be, you know, very important and very beneficial for performance. Yeah. So that would seem to be a, a really valuable attribute of this type of storage. If, if it's so costly to, to warm your cache and populate your cache, then the ability to persist is, is massively important. Absolutely. You, sh you should join our team. You have, <laughs> you know, great ideas. <laughs> Well, it would seem to be just common sense, but so I, I love learning more about the time and effort and um, and expertise we dedicate to ensuring that the that the storage engine at the heart of MongoDB stays relevant, stays efficient. And um, what else is on the roadmap? What else are you looking at? Broadly, there's um, you know a whole bunch of interesting technologies, both in terms of hardware and software space that are on my radar. Uh, there are, you know, new kinds of SSDs uh, that are called um, zoned devices where you only write to those SSDs sequentially. So that puts a burden onto, you know, the operating system, the application. And why would you want to do that? Because then it um, simplifies the job of the SSD in terms of, you know, how to organize the data internally. And usually what S what conventional SSDs do is that, you know, you throw a bunch of data into it and then at some point 
for, you know, for the reasons that I won't get into uh, today, they basically have to reorganize the data. They have to, you know, read it from one place and write it to another. And that's called garbage collection. And that basically can cause, uh, can introduce some unpredictability into the performance of your IO device. Because, you know, if I'm reading from the device and then the device is also, you know, doing some internal reorganization, reading and writing the data, then my reads are going to suffer. They're going to be slower and my writes are going to be slower. So, and, and so zone devices, they put some burden onto you in terms of, you know, how you use the device, but then they don't have this um, extra housekeeping to do so your performance can stay more predictable. So that's um, that's one type of technology that that's on that's on my radar, and then there is a there is a bunch of um, questions that I'm asking about how to make the I/O path uh, faster. But perhaps one of the aspects that I will look at in the nearest future again has to do with caching, and so. Why Tiger is now being re-architected to adopt a tiered storage architecture in a sense that, so if MongoDB is running with multiple replicas and each replica has its own instance of the storage engine underneath, now you would be able to configure uh, MongoDB to have its data stored in a object storage such as uh, S3, Amazon S3, and then that would make it easier for the replicas to, to share data. And so the white tiger is being extended with the support, but now the natural question that comes in that, okay, so accessing data from S3 now takes, you know, longer than accessing it from a local SSD. And how do we solve this problem? Priorities. A cache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we we need a cache and 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 I wrote a cache for uh, for White Tiger. And so I think my next job will be to figure out what is the role of caching in the tiered storage architecture and uh, you know, can we use the the cache code that I wrote to make it, you know, more general kind of cache and what would be the performance advantages, you know, the trade-offs, the pros and cons, you know, the, the engineering effort, effort involved and, you know, all of that. So I think that's, that's the most uh, imminent task on my roadmap. Oh, that's fantastic. And like I said, I, I think it's wonderful that, that we're dedicating this much, you know, effort and, and um, care toward looking at, at how we can continue to improve, you know, with the changes that are taking place in the, in the hardware landscape and the and the operating system landscape. Fascinating discussion. Uh, we are at, we are at about time, but I'm curious what you do when you're not working on systems. What do you do in your uh, in your personal life? Depends on the season. <laughs> it's winter now, so I do quite a bit of skiing. Where where in the world are you? I'm in Vancouver, BC, British Columbia, and. Uh, Last week, uh, my family and I went went skiing to Alberta, uh, to Lake Louise. I do mostly cross country skiing because I like torture. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In the summer, it's more biking, camping, being at the beach, you know, windsurfing. I also do some ballet. Oh, really? Yeah, and 
I cook a lot. I love to cook. I really want to be a good chef, so I cook every day and, you know, all kinds of things. Recently, I got into smoking, so I, I smoke various, you know, things on my grill. Today, okay. I'm going to smoke fish. I also bake bread. Oh, I bake beautiful. bread from scratch. I have a home grain mill, and so I I buy grain from uh, a local farm in BC, and so... I grow, um, I make bread from just this grain, water, and salt. So I don't use any commercial flour, any commercial yeast. So I, I, I just grind this grain. I grow my own yeast and make my own flour and, um, yeah, bake this bread. And, and my, yeah, my family have switched to eating only this kind of bread. Oh, that sounds so so good. <laughs> Do I smell a sunset career? <laughs> Perhaps as a chef. <laughs> no, that's that that's too hard. You have to wake up too early. You know, <laughs> being in systems, yeah, being in systems, you know, you can you can have any schedule you want. So <laughs> I, <laughs> True. I think I'm gonna stick to that. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Fedorova. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with me. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, I mean, stay tuned for uh, new posts in the MongoDB Engineering Journal because I'll be writing about um, the things that I talked about today. Fantastic. And I'll include links in the show notes. So if you're curious and you want to learn more, check out the show notes. Thank you once again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about storage technology and the research that Sasha is working on, you can visit the Engineering Journal at engineering.mongodb.com. If you enjoyed the show today, I would love to get some feedback. Apple Podcast, Spotify, leave a comment, leave a rating. Greatly appreciate that. Visit mongodb.com world to get your tickets. Use the code podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get 25% off and some really cool podcast swag. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.